Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show today, Sarah Rockhind. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Sarah is the Director of Mid-Market and SMB Sales at Axiom. They are a new model law firm that helps in-house consoles get work done more efficiently. As usual, we're not going to be talking about our respective companies. We're actually today going to talk about something that is increasingly top of mind for people as the year progresses here, which is strategic planning for the next fiscal year. Before we get into that, love to get to know our guests a little bit. So love to ask you what's your favorite book in sales or leadership or even no one's gone to fiction yet, but fiction's fair game too. I think that as far as sales books are concerned, my favorite is probably The Challenger Sale. I think that is one of the sales books that I've read in recent years that's helped me to really reframe the way I approach client conversations and the value of sales overall. And I think it's something that I reference at least on a weekly basis, if not even on a daily basis when working with my team and and coaching reps. Is there a specific coaching tip that resonates the most that you you wish all of your team would adhere to? (laughs) I think probably what resonates the most for me, though, generally is, is really around teaching and thinking about not just what am I trying to do to sell my product today and what am I trying to do to get the prospect to engage with me, but really how am I helping them to learn something new, something that's going to add value to their day that will show to them that I care equally about their success generally versus my own individual success and how that can really influence the overall sales cycle and the way that we engage with prospects and clients. Let's move on to our our main topic of the day, which is 2020 strategic planning. Where as an organization do you begin that process? For our organization, in, in terms of sort of the scale and size of where we are today, that happens in a lot of different places throughout the organization and at different levels of of seniority and responsibility. I think though that as a sales director and as someone who is starting to think about our next fiscal year, which will be the calendar year 2020, it's really starting with, I think, reflection and starting to really look back on the first half of 2019 to think about where did we do well? What was working well? Where are the friction points? What are the sort of concerns we're hearing from salespeople? what's going well with clients, what's not going well with clients, and start there to create a bit of a foundation of what you'll then want to iterate on as you think about changing that or updating that or evolving that for 2020. So I think that's probably true, I think, regardless of where within an organization you may find yourself. You were mentioning the size of your overall organization. I think you guys are at least 2,000 employees, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. You know, you're certainly getting up there in terms of the organizational complexity with managers, directors, VPs, and I would assume everyone's got a little bit of their hand in the planning of of the sales strategy for the following year. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that, as you point out, depending where you sit within the organization, you will take a different view on that in terms of what you're going to be focused on. So thinking about, for example, the sales operations team that I partner really closely with and how we've built out everything from how we set quotas this year, for example, and and how that's played out thus far, 
I've been chatting with some colleagues of mine who I collaborate with from the Revenue Collective, and we've been talking about how you think about account assignments and the balance of assigned accounts versus sort of free reign for reps, like all of those different tactical questions will be one element you might be thinking about. And on the flip side, you may also be thinking about it from a more client strategy perspective. Are we pursuing the right leads? Are we pursuing the right profile? What's our total addressable market? So there's, I think, lots of different angles and perspectives to be thinking about when it comes to sort of future planning. What other major levers are there? What, what else do you think about? Yeah, I think the other thing we're, we're taking a look at is also the sort of operational efficiency of how we actually sell. We're looking at how we pursue leads at the top of the funnel through a combination of SDR and account executive outreach to the way that we then engage with clients when they've identified a real need and, and how we provide them with the right type of attorney and, and matchmake for those needs to managing those relationships once we've deployed an attorney and are monitoring that for performance management and account management. So I think there's also a lot of opportunity to kind of review and reflect on the operational component of of how you're going to market, how you're deploying the actual sales process that makes it easy to buy for from clients and enables your reps to work really effectively, which I think is also something that is constant fine-tuning process. It's not something that's sort of one and done, of course. On that note, in terms of roles, it sounds like you have adopted a very SaaS-like segmentation. You have SDRs. You said you have AEs also. Are those AEs closing and then handing off after they close, or do they retain the account for a period of time? Our AEs, after they've closed the business, will retain the business as well. So they're playing a dual role in terms of both making the initial sale and then managing the relationship and the delivery of that sales process to our clients with the potential to resell or upsell down the road. In my particular part of our organization, there is less of that, just given that we are by and large approaching a sort of smaller opportunity for that versus our enterprise sales team who are working across the Fortune 500, where there's much more depth of opportunity for cross-selling, upselling, building out those relationships. So just a slightly different focus there. Clearly, your AEs retain commercial responsibility post-sale for the renewal and the upsell. Did I hear you right that they're also responsible for some of the service delivery or does someone else actually do that matching of talent, the attorneys that you're placing with the customer? We work really closely with a, a team we refer to as the talent engagement team here that, that helps us to kind of take on some of that heavy lifting and, and do some of that matchmaking. And then once, for example, the, the deal has been closed and the attorney has gotten started, we similarly have a client success team that does help to lean in and pick up some of the burden of performance management, making sure that things are being delivered well, that clients are satisfied, lawyers are satisfied. It's sort of a 360 view as far as that's concerned. It sounds like your talent engagement team is very much like a solutions consultant or pre-sales engineer. And then you've got that client success, which parallels to the engagement drivers, you know, in a traditional customer success organization. Yeah, that's exactly right. We've really taken a lot of the SaaS model from an operational perspective and, and applied that to really what is a professional services business. And I think that has been, for us, really critical in terms of our ability to grow and scale by continuing to create more and more kind of segmentation within our organization. We went pretty deep there. I'd love to come back out and 
and talk about something that you mentioned earlier on, which was how you guys are thinking about territory strategy. What are some of the ideas that you're kicking around and considering moving from and to? I don't think there is any silver bullet here. I think everyone is, is grappling with this. We look at sort of a cross-section of topics. Geography is, is one main factor. Industry is another key factor for us. The size of business and, and revenue size. And for us, we have a sort of unique nuance for our model, which is sort of the size of the legal department, which has a major impact in terms of the complexity and sophistication of, of the services that they will require. Right now, we are taking the approach uh, in my particular function of each of our account executives has 200 assigned accounts. And those accounts follow some cross-section across industry, as well as geography, as we look to sort of break that up across a number of different account executives. But I think I found, and definitely curious to hear how your organization has done this, I think it's always a bit of a moving target. And again, kind of constant refinement as we learn and have better understanding and penetration of each market to sort of refine what ultimately makes the most sense for, for our business. We actually had a major transition for this fiscal year. We, like a lot of SaaS companies as we were growing up, had what I would refer to as an open territory model. And any AE could grab any account as long as it had been fallow, untouched for 30 days. So what was happening, right, is the AEs would basically wait up till midnight and wait for the great accounts to free up because some other AE forgot to work it or decided to give up on it. And it just creates this incredible inefficiency. You know, one thing we did have there was we had a cap of 100 accounts, which is pretty typical. And if you want to grab one, you've got to release one. But that, that causes a few problems. I mean, one is it's a, a massive amount of time wasted because everyone's reviewing the same accounts. The second problem it causes is it starts to become hard to help new account executives succeed because the existing account executives will sit on the best, you know, maybe they have of their 150 are great, right? But when you get big enough, you've got a lot of people sitting on 50 accounts. At some point, you've got this critical mass of all the great accounts. So we wanted to solve that problem to help us boost the success of our new people, but also maintain the success of our existing people. So we went to a named account approach just like you, and we didn't segment by industry yet. We segmented by geography and size. So people have a, a patch of named accounts by industry and size. Given the fact that we were assigning accounts, we were debating whether to assign, you know, like the 100 or 200 or whatever accounts per person or to assign out the entirety of all of our accounts in Salesforce, which means people could get 2,000 accounts a person. We opted for the latter, and there was quite a debate internally about that of, of why we opted to go with the sort of 2,000 account per person approach. But our argument was, was we didn't want accounts to be sitting, you know, completely untouched in Salesforce. And we didn't want people trying to get those accounts and fighting with each other to get those accounts. So that that solved a lot of problems by doing that. We're all sort of thinking about this together. You mentioned the, the challenge for new people. How will you determine sort of what you carve out of, for example, the AE that has those 2,000 accounts? How will that decision process flow? Great question. And it was exactly one of the problems we had to solve. So what we what we did was we had a capacity planning model for the next fiscal year when we were doing this. And we knew we were going to hire X number of new account executives. And we knew we needed to serve those account executives with a certain number of accounts. Our solution to that was we created a tag on the account that's called a reserved account. And what the reserved account means is this is in your patch. 
but it can and very likely will be taken away from you when a new AE is hired. So we kind of pre-architected equal potential new territories for new hires, but still allowed the existing AEs to work those accounts until the new hire came on. There's sort of an ancillary benefit of that design, which is, I was actually talking about this with, with someone earlier, and they asked me like, well, is there a disincentive for the AEs to work those that they don't really, really own? And it's actually been quite the contrary, which is if you know you're likely to lose a great account, you're going to go all the harder on that new account to try to get the opportunity. Because if you get the opportunity, you keep the account, right? And you keep the business. So that, that solved that problem. But yeah, you do need to tell them, these are not really your accounts. They are quote unquote reserved accounts, but go ahead and work them until someone comes. That's brilliant. Like you said, that addresses the needs of the business overall, which is that you want to work all of the accounts, so to speak, that are potentially available to you and not let opportunity sort of lie fallow. And at the same time, leaves the prospects and accounts for the new hires, which, as you said, you've already forecasted will be coming in inevitably, especially in a a high growth business, as as it seems it is. Um, That's great. I may have to steal that from you. Territory planning, obviously, is one of the things that you know is critical in strategic planning. Do you also do a compensation plan and structure review? Like, do you, is that a time where you think about changing comp plans? Yes, that, that's definitely happening. It's certainly happening at the executive level of our organization as we think about the entirety of the Salesforce and what makes the most sense from a compensation perspective. I, I can say that I think we've already had some real learnings in the first half of this year based on some of the adjustments we made to the plan coming out of 2018. But you're absolutely right. I think that plays a key component in addition to all of the other sort of account-based review and territory review and so forth, especially as a business and as the business decides what are the priorities and the objectives for the next year that may require the tweaking of the compensation plan on a more sort of local level, so to speak, even amongst, for example, my own team, it is something that we're looking at, not necessarily from a overall compensation philosophy, but just in thinking about issues such as career pathing. And as folks begin to earn the ability to get promoted and potentially even be promoted to the next type of function at our organization, what does that look like? What are the timelines? Do we have that clearly articulated and agreed upon with our HR function, for example. So while the sort of macro compensation philosophy is happening at the executive level, those types of conversations, I think, are also happening in the more individual team uh, levels. Since you're leading teams of account executives, are they as focused on career pathing as you think maybe the, the earlier career professionals are? I think absolutely. I would argue this is true for anyone in in their career, including account executives of different levels. I think it changes. It may not be quite as acute as to when am I immediately going to get to that next title? What two months away is three months away? As you become more senior in your career, inevitably that is that shifts. But at the same time, I also think that everyone wants to know that they are progressing in their career, that they are making advancements for their own professional profile and that they are in turn being rewarded and applauded and everything else for the work that they're doing and for that commitment to our organization. And I think it's really important to be able to help make sure we're we're clearly defining what it takes for promotion, 
making sure we're we're helping people in that process or, or giving them access to the right tools or support and so forth. We're certainly not perfect at it, but I think it's definitely something that's really important to have top of mind as a leader to be able to make sure that your team is making the strides and the advancement that they themselves are seeking. I made the classic mistake earlier in my career when I was managing of assuming that everyone was like me, that they wanted to continue up the management trajectory, right? Manager, director, VP, and who knows into where. And I discovered that there were certain people who were not like me, that they were very happy to remain individual contributors. They wanted to learn and grow and and increase their earnings potential, but they were in that mode. So I'm wondering, as you reflect on the AEs that you've come across, uh, just a ballpark, what percentage of them do you think fit into the, I want to become CRO one day or the other category, which is, you know, no, I don't want to be bothered with that. I, I want to have maximum earnings potential and run my own quote unquote business within a business. It probably has been 20 to 30% who see sort of that management, people management, VP, CRO path, and the balance wanting to, as you say, continue to simply develop and hone and refine and grow their earning potential as individual contributors. People seem to have a relatively, for the most part, not always, can recognize what they enjoy most versus sort of, as you said, an assumption that that's just the path you have to take. And I see people really taking real ownership of that, which is great to see. If one of your AEs came to you and asked you, I'm thinking about becoming a manager, what questions would you ask them for them to self-assess whether it was the right path for them at this particular time in their career? I think the question is, where are they in their career? Have, have they had enough individual contributor sales experience to begin with, does it make sense for them to have a little more time and seat, so to speak, and, and hone some of those skills before they look to take on the next set? But beyond that, I think the questions to ask and questions I continue to ask myself, frankly, are what are the activities in their day, the work that they do that gives them the most fulfillment or satisfaction or excitement? And what are the activities in their day that they loathe and wish they didn't have to do that? And probably just suggest to them that they just start kind of taking note of that, even over the period of a a couple of weeks, if nothing else, to start to reflect on the areas of their work that they enjoy most. And sometimes that may be really consistent with what they already were thinking. And sometimes I think that can be surprising for people, especially, as you said, for folks who sort of are perhaps thinking just it's just one path. It's just an upward trajectory of manager, director, VP, and and so on. And it just requires a little bit of sort of pulling up, analyzing what you're in the weeds on every day uh, that you don't always have time to kind of take stock of. But I think that kind of reflection can be really indicative. I agree with your approach and in, in advising people in that way. My additional question that I asked them is, would you feel more fulfilled closing the biggest deal in company history or in leading the person who closed the biggest deal in company history? The answer to that is very telling. I would suspect that most people would have kind of a snap answer about how they feel about that. And, and that may also, by the way, I think that may change depending where you are in your career, your seniority, your age, your what's going on in your personal life at home and so forth. I think at different stages, people may have different appetites for the work that they do. And in some cases, uh, a sales role can be very, for example, heavy on travel and lots of time on the road and you may have conflicts at home. So I think some of this is also driven by 
what matters to you personally at that time, which might shift a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. At Axiom, you had a pretty amazing run in enterprise sales. And then I would assume we're told or tapped to take over this initiative in the SMB and middle market. I mean, that's a strategic planning decision in and of itself to move either up market or down market. How have you had to change basically your go-to-market strategy as the organization has moved from up market large law firms to the SMB and mid-market space? What I think is great is that we can really build on the foundation that we've been lucky to create in our enterprise space where we are pursuing clients across the Fortune 500 and taking a very, as I always describe, a very white glove approach to creating relationships and working with legal departments of 100 plus legal teams with with that size of, of department. But I think to your question, how does that differ To me, it's all about lots and lots of small nuances and little changes that impact the way we need to move, as you said, sort of shift down market a bit and and take an approach that's going to not only be effective for, for this client set, but also be effective for our business and how we sell to them. One of the main differences, first and foremost, is we talked a lot already today about account segmentation and assignment. An enterprise rep at Axiom owns probably no more than 20 accounts at most, and that is the entire world that they live in. A member of my team is is managing 200 accounts by contrast because the opportunity per account is is just much smaller. In our enterprise organization, most of our sales uh, members are on the road. They're they're meeting face-to-face. They're on planes, trains, and automobiles to go and see each and every prospect and each and every client. Where my function is primarily based out of our office here in New York and in Chicago, we're doing most of our work on the phone, video, email, et cetera, because we're trying to drive a lower cost of sale overall. Lots of different nuances like that. And and even the sales process itself, which can look quite similar to our enterprise function. Again, the way we speak to clients, the, the messaging that we use, the approach we take is just a different nuance than we may be approaching otherwise. I've been sort of building this out over the last couple of years, slowly but surely. And we've learned a lot. We have a lot more to learn. We are by no means at steady state yet, but it's been really fun. And and we've got a really amazing group here who are helping to build that every day. So I think the best opportunity has been to be able to create something new and different here for us. I think it's a blessing that to be able to move from enterprise to mid-market as opposed to the other way around because it's almost like you can take pieces away from the very sophisticated processes that you have as you go to mid-market, I think. And let me challenge me if I'm wrong versus my experience in going from mid-market to enterprises, you have to build a lot of stuff and the nature of selling is quite different. I think we're really fortunate to be able to pull back certain pieces versus having to add on Things like sales cycle, for example, how long does it take from conversation to a deal that's won? It could look really different when you don't have to negotiate procurement and the legal team and the business teams and everything else that comes with sort of the enterprise scale relationships. We can move just a bit more nimbly. We can move more quickly than that side of our business. So both complement one another, but like you say, we're able to be able to kind of peel back rather than having to bolt on. Thank you for the insight and the wisdom today. What's the best way to learn about Axiom and to, and to get in touch with you? 
Absolutely. Well, I, I would say, you know, feel free to reach out to me directly either on LinkedIn or via email. Always happy to, to chat a bit about about what we're doing. I should plug that we are hiring uh, really worldwide, not even just in our New York and Chicago offices. So always happy to have a conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.